0: Stories from Nowhere, a conversation podcast hosted by Andrew Monroe Rice. Welcome. I'm glad you found the time to spend with us for about the next hour. Today, this is a conversation with Justin Jones, who, as far as current and former heads of departments of corrections in various states, I'm confident in saying without being much of an expert on it, you don't find many with the unique background that you find uh, in today's story with Justin somewhat of an unorthodox, different pathway uh, to the world of corrections. And some really amazing stories, um, stories that were a little bit of a surprise to me about his background, his upbringing. And then just tremendous wisdom of what he learned by being innovative in a red state as a more of a progressive, creative mind to look at the data and look at the trends and see how we could be more effective at allowing people, enabling people to have a second chance upon release. Uh, this is a beautiful... A topic for me because it's an area that I work probably most consistently in in my life now, work within corrections environments as a volunteer. So it was a real treat that I got to talk with Justin. Um, hope you'll enjoy it. We'd love to hear from you on our social media or on our website uh, what you thought about this conversation. All right, well, here we are. Justin, welcome. Oh, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm glad we could. This is the first one. I was just telling you, this is the first one of these conversations I've done in person. You oh. know, and you're the first Oki well, along. I, <laughs> I feel special at being yeah, a. I yeah, a, I do too. Yeah. I'm so grateful to be able to have you, in, enter in this conversation with me. Not only because of the work um, that I watched you, that I watched you do in, the, in your role, as director of corrections here in Oklahoma, but just the way in which it seemed. And I don't want to put words in your mouth or, or define you for you. You can do that the way you did it with some hard and practicality. And I don't necessarily, I'm not an expert on the, the correction systems in all the other 50 states, the other 49 states, but I don't know if that's the norm. So um, tell me a little bit what led you, how did you get your first job within that field generally? Well, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like uh, a book I read once called
1: The Drunkard's Walk, you know, randomness. And so I, I knew early on that I had a public service mentality and I really can't explain that. I always felt like I had the need to serve. And so uh, working in the old field and working my way through college, I kind of migrated from being an English and journalism major over to the social sciences because I saw that's that was kind of in vogue at the time with all the Vietnam vets coming back. and. You know, a majority of them were getting degrees in sociology and psychology. That's who I hung out with because my brother was at a three-time Vietnam vet. And so when I graduated, I know the economy was in pretty bad shape uh, in, in 1977. And so I had to go back to the oil field because I was really wanting a job um, as a public servant. So I took all the merit tests for the state of Oklahoma and I waited and I waited <laughs> And then finally, um, I got two calls on the same day. Uh, one of them was, was uh, as a social worker with the Department of Human Services, which was a local position in Garvin County, the county I grew up in. And the other one was with uh, the Department of Corrections as a probation and parole officer, which I really had never thought of much, other than when I went to take the test for social worker, they said, well, you might as well take this one too, because your degree matches. And so I got the call from the Department of Corrections and what kind of won me over with them. I said, well, where's the job at? And they said, well, we never tell you that until we hire you because we want you to be flexible. It could be anywhere from Guymon to Ida Bell to the four corners of the state. And I thought, well, that's good because I needed to get out of that culture and that environment that I grew up in. And so I took the job and I thought, well, this would be good for a couple of years. Then one day I woke up and I'd been working for corrections for 37 years. I was the corrections director uh, toward the end of my tenure. And it was like, wow. What started off as maybe a two year gig ended up being my career. And I would say that I learned a lot at being 22 years of age and being a probation officer supervising parolees twice my age. Hmm. Uh, You know, you learn by quick baptism. Uh, And so that was really, I think, probably the
0: best job i ever had in corrections uh, I've been a warden I' been other things later on so it's interesting so you didn't I know it's it is somewhat common that there's sometimes multi-generational uh families that have multi-generations that work in corrections particularly if there's a prison in a local county so you didn't have any family connection to the work no law enforcement background no desire because uh, you know
1: probation pro work is quasi law enforcement and uh, I was really not geared toward the law enforcement side of it so when they told me I had to have a gun uh, after I got the job offer and then I had to go purchase
0: it myself. I was like, okay, I got to do some research here. (laughs) You and I are in a, well, you back then and me right now are in a very unique category in Oklahoma of uh, not being a gun owner or or knowing much about it. Of course, you didn't have Google and
1: internet in those days. You know, so I did a little research Hmm. and, you know, of course I grew up uh, where my grandfather, who would help raise me, you know, had a gun in the house and, you know, we'd go squirrel hunting and things of that sort, but actually carrying a gun. So I I seldom carried a gun uh, during my seven years as a professional officer. It was pretty rare. Uh, you did have to make arrests and things like that. And I took it seriously uh, and was very cautious, you know, and did, did my semi annual qualifying. But uh, other than that, it was not something that drew me to the job.
0: So the that being your first role intrigued me because you said it was maybe your favorite or most important you know there is that theory along within large system work right large more bureaucratic whether that's government or for-profit non-profit universities whatever that and even in the countries like in in maoist you know communist china that there's this idea that to be a good leader which you of course you you elevated at some point to the highest leadership role in that agency as director of corrections, that is ideally to have had either filled every role or worked in or managed sort of all the different roles and levels of which you would ascend to a leadership role. And so I've always found that intriguing, and particularly when you come in entry level like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've had this
1: conversation with both my daughters who are both PhDs, and, which is remarkable because you know prior to myself, my brother and sister, uh, nobody at my um uh, family had ever even graduated high school. My great-grandparents migrated through the Carolinas, uh, our genealogy. That's kind of where you can pick them up at. And they migrated in through Arkansas as uh, sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. And so they sharecropped their way into Oklahoma, the land of opportunity, back at the <laughs> turn of the century. And then my uh, my grandfather and his brother were drafted into World War One. So when you look at randomness and you look at, you know, interviewing me about it, John, you can't take that out because one of the most significant things in my life was the fact that my grandfather, on his way uh, to France to fight in the trenches with his brother in World War I, got the mumps. Hmm. So he, he never ended up on the battlefield. He became a mule skinner, and his brother was killed as soon as he hit the trenches. And so if it hadn't been for an illness with my grandfather, because everybody in that regiment at that time were all killed instantly. Oh, wow. Hit the battlefield with the mustard gas and the trench warfare. Uh, he didn't have a birth certificate or anything until he got into the military. Uh, he was never hospitalized. He, I never knew that he was sick a day in his life, you know? And as the Native Americans would say, he had a good death. He woke up one morning and was watching TV and died. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to take a step backwards in your career to gain knowledge. Sometimes I tell them, you know, your best experiences are forced upon you, and you may not like it if you get turned down for a career promotion. And sometimes you have to go sideways. You know, one of the best experiences in my life was also one of the most painful uh, when I was forced to move to Western Oklahoma and, and take a job that I didn't want to take, that was kind of a lateral or actually maybe even a demotion for me. Title wise, if you're into that, and I probably was in my 30s. At some point, uh, the ego kind of overloads you a little bit, and I tuck it on the chin. But the fact that I did that and ended up warden at the Granite Reformatory and, and warden at another facility, you know, years later, I went back and thanked that director for forcing <laughs> that on me because I had ill feelings about. But if I had not had that experience, yeah, I, yeah. Governor Henry probably never would have uh, considered me as a, as a director of corrections. was
0: that with the granite uh,
1: warden job? Was that your first job as a warden? And that was my first job as a warden. And then I ended up being um, kind of a troubleshooter, which is sometimes not good for your career. So every time there was an issue with a warden where they were relieved of their duties, you know, uh, many times I would be called to go in and, and clean it up and yeah like an interim yeah and, and so you come from community corrections because part of that I ended up being the director of probation probe which is under our combined system and I think I was 29 30 years old which you know I had no business in being in that job at that age but you know you either swim or you don't and so I when you look at that career progression and then starting to work with inmates when you really hadn't had any experience before. Uh, I had some in 1984, 85 when I was the director of receptions at Lexington, uh, but it really gives you a different perspective
0: on it. And so, what were when you took that job as the warden first time? I know you've been in and around the different aspects of corrections. What were some? What was one of the? Can you remember a couple of things that surprised you? Some ideas or assumptions you had made? Yeah, there were a couple of things. Uh, one of them was,
1: you know. And, and, and I don't know if it's an Achilles heel or an attribute, you know, I, I have no fear. So I would go out on this yard, which is pretty open prison yard and had lots and lots of violence and issues, uh, had a recent escape from a high security, which is always not good. And, and of course the, the, the infamous issue had just occurred uh before i got there and that's when the deputy warden's wife was kidnapped and uh you know was found years later you know living with the individual but it was interesting to see the distance between staff and inmates and if there wasn't any distance it was because the the staff was probably borderline corrupt yeah and the inmates were taking advantage of it so they had these kind of relationships Too close. Too close. But what was interesting was sitting down, we had a lot of young uh, gang members that had done drive-by shootings that uh, were in for life, and just visiting with them about their backgrounds and some of the things they would say about, say, the shootings that they were involved in started me really thinking about all the different things in our culture and society that impacts, that contributes to uh somebody having a uh, an increased likelihood of going to prison so and so we started some programs um that were pretty unique Um, i've always been a believer in evidence-based programs Mm -hmm. but before you're you know before there's a meta-analysis of all the research and stuff there has to be somebody that has an idea that doesn't work or an idea that does work trial and and error yeah yeah that becomes (laughs) so your failures, I think, are more important than your successes. Yeah. And I had lots of failures during that, those periods of time. So we we organized some of the young gang members to uh, start doing uh, plays and productions. Uh, we took an old title uh, a Title One building and uh, converted it uh, into kind of a town hall. Hmm. And we were trying to do anything we could. Uh, to engage the intellect and the stimulation of inmates to keep them away from the violence and things that were plaguing the facility at the time. So I think the, the honesty and the openness of the inmates when you really get down to having those conversations. So I would go out in the evening and just sit on a rock in the yard, prison yard, and just let everybody gather around. And eventually we would have several hundred uh, you know, if we didn't have people on lockdown. And uh, and we would just have these conversations. And I remember having that conversation uh, right after the O.J. Simpson verdict uh, when everybody thought we needed to lock down all of the prisons, you know, because we were going to have all these disturbances leading up to that verdict. And then we had issues uh, when, you know, African-American inmates were celebrating and, and you know, the uh, Caucasian inmates didn't appreciate that too much. But we, we were able to get through that without... You know, closing the prison yard. So that's a big deal. But I think a lot of it contributed to having those set downs and and having a more open uh, dialogue and communication with inmates about how they could be more productive on the inside than they were on the outside with uh, the right structure. With the right structure. And uh, which led later on in life to
0: starting the Lifers Club. I was going to ask you about that. I was aware of it because that's something I've been in my prison work. Um, which is so much more limited and and short lived. I still do it. I just haven't been doing it long, and it's in a much different role, obviously, than all the ones you played. But I am intrigued by the role um, in a yard and in the culture and in units of the what I would call elder—the mm-hmm. role of the elder. Right. And um, and I know that there's some of the facilities, or cause there's a couple of facilities here, you know, where there's more elders. There's one in particular that. Is considered to have a pretty stable yard, and inmates that I've worked with um, have attributed that somewhat mm-hmm. to the role of the elders and the um, earning your way and the mentorship that comes from the elders. So, tell me about the lifers club and and the experience with that. Well, you know, taking the lifers club to a different level
1: uh, was you know letting them you know have their own charter and deciding how they were going to be productive. And you mentioned it, but a lot of it was mentorship. A lot of it was reaching outside the prison walls to do, um, you know, work for nonprofits, raise money if they could, uh, do writings, do paintings, and uh, and it was a way, you know, and I I can sit here and remember many of the inmates that were doing life without parole um, that were in their 40s by now uh, during that time, Hmm. and and how they would just slug through the days you know working in the kitchen go back to the unit close their door watch a little tv and, you know what's productive about that what makes you you know get up in the morning you know other than a correct officer telling you it's time to get up and so we looked at motivation and things of that sort and, and that's not to say that when you get a group of 50 or 60 lifers together you're not going to have issues you got to
0: practice the best form of communication which is active listening and, and that took a while. So what were some of the things that you noticed in the Lifers Club that did create motivation, for instance? You know, what were some of the ways in which guys, um, as they were moving through their 40s and looking into those older years, was it the opportunity to mentor? Was it um, outlets for passions they had? What were the things you found? I think the biggest hurdle was, was you know, working
1: through congruency and, and, you know, for the inmates to understand who they were, what their limitations were, and, was it viable for them to be a productive citizen knowing they're never going to walk out with freedom. So we had to get over that hurdle. Uh, you know, inmates have a lot of time on their hands. So why not do a little mindfulness and and reach inside, understand how congruency works. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of them started, you know, writing correspondence, uh, you know, I, working through victim witness coordinators for the DAs and stuff to reach out to their victims, you know, for sincere apologies and things yeah, of that sort. Yeah. Others reached deep down to find out, you know, did they have talents that they weren't aware of and, and boy did some of them really I did bet. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that we had done but we were having talent contest uh, throughout the facilities, musical talent, singing talent, just American to, Idol. Yeah, really and and, and and then we had to have we had to reach out to our volunteers because we needed more guitars, we needed more equipment, and and before we could actually have the contest, it got shut down for political reasons. Uh, Surprise! And, yeah, you talk about some disappointed. Uh, oh yeah, uh, men uh, and women. Because they had been practicing for months, you know, ready to go, and applying that to the Wifers club, a lot of Wifers clubs were involved in that. And so then, then you have to deal with disappointment when you're trying to be productive, and the outside forces say, "Well, even though, you know, you're doing your time and you're owning your crime, you know, we're not going to allow you to do these things." And so what was interesting during that time at uh, at Maxim security at Oklahoma State Penitentiary, uh, we were, I, th- I believe, we were the first high security facility in the nation to allow mp3 players and we would ask the uh, the men um what kind of music do you like and uh it, it was really interesting um the music they chose and then we would load it on mp3 you know give it to them in their in their in their cells or and so that really kind of started um helping the lifers club understand that it's a give and take you know to be productive you get you know extra benefits some of them may be taken away later for political reasons um, because corrections is one of those professions that's based upon anecdotal cases it's not really based on science and research uh you know there, there's no um, longitudinal history of progress there's progress and then it stops because one anecdotal case you know ends a program uh, like our We had a real successful GPS house arrest program Uh, back in the 80s and early 90s. You know, we had probably 50,000 offenders go through it that were successful, got to go home early. And then we had that one case, and it just happened to be a homicide, a a domestic disturbance on a young man that was out on that program. And it just happened to be a couple of blocks from Governor Keating's house. And uh, next thing you know, it's over with. But I always felt like if you treated corrections like you treated the medical profession. If, if you were to have a heart attack, heaven forbid, and you die on the operating table with open heart surgery, politicians are not gonna step in and put a moratorium on open heart surgeries because you died. However, if you're an inmate, and there's a 100 successful ones or a 1,000 successful ones or 100,000, but one inmate who gets out on a specialty program uh, you go back to the caucus running for president, you know, with Willie Horton, This takes one case and then all that research and all that systemic, uh, longevity of success. Nobody wants to talk about success.
0: You and I will know that some of the, and I'm not saying this shouldn't have been done, but some of the ones that got let on, on lower charges are on the road right. to worse stuff right
1: and, and that's the irony I think of you know classification systems and you know the classification systems nowadays are very well validated uh, they're very gender specific and you know you could apply those um, validated classification instruments to a lot of inmates at high security even on death row uh, which I recently did with James Connington and except for the type of crime you know they would be zero to one. Uh, points, which means they should be at community. There's a lot of really bad people in prison that are going to get out. There's a lot of really good people in prison that made bad decisions and they're never going to get yeah, out. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And that. that's just the way I, you know, it's the way it is. Some, the most intelligent people I've ever met have been inmates and what they did early in life, when you look at their pre-sentence investigations or you sit down and visit with them uh, or look at the, the studies that were done when they were in foster care, you know, they're you know, the reasons they were removed from their families at birth and, you know, the horrific childhoods, you know, uh, that they had. It's really kind of interesting that they're so intelligent many times. And what happens is they get stimulated by crime. They get stimulated by drugs at 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age. If they could get stimulated by a book, if they could get stimulated by music, if they were introduced to cultural things that were never in their environment, You know, it's kind of like, you know, one of the things uh, I look at. I went to a very small high school. We had basketball and football. We might have baseball or track if we had a football coach that liked that. Uh, We had band, but, you know, my graduating class was 43 people. Nowadays, I think it's 10 or 12 in, in that school. And we came from all these rural schools that had been consolidated. So the bus ride was, you know, two hours in the morning, two and a half hours in the afternoon. Anyway, long story short, you know, I use that as the analogy because I really took to cycling and running later in life. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if I'd been introduced to cycling. I'm fanatical about those things, even though it's, it's a weak application of my analogy. But you apply that to inmates who are sitting there, where even in Oklahoma City, in certain areas, a young man may not go outside his zip code until he's old enough to drive. And we think about, well, that's usually, you know, akin to big cities where you live in a borough of New York or somewhere, you know, you grow up in Brooklyn, you stay in Queens. Well, here in Oklahoma City, you know, you got people in Capitol Hill, you got, you got people on the south side that never go north. I've never really bought the concept that there's high crime rate zip codes. Uh, and you and I may have spoken about this before. There are high social illness zip codes that contribute to pathways to prison. So earlier when we were talking about anecdotal cases where, you know, uh, an inmate gets an opportunity to be pre-released and then screws it up for everybody else. The same thing applies to anecdotal cases where people come out of those disenfranchised zip codes with lots of social illnesses and they don't get in trouble and they become successful. Absolutely, yeah. And then I've had politicians at the Capitol tell me, well, look at so-and-so over here. I know him, he's my banker. He grew up in that neighborhood, you know? Hmm. So they don't wanna to listen to the ones that don't have the ability to pull themselves up and not become this intergenerational statistic going to prison. Now, my wife and I talk about this a lot because she was uh, in 30 or 40 um shelters or um, different homes. she was an orphan uh, she's African-American she grew up in North Tulsa so she's descendants of the Brace massacre and my background is not like hers but neither one of us can play victim and that's why we've had such a great relationship over the many years that we've been married and together is that uh, she won't allow me to play victim and I you know we don't do that. But we sometimes have these conversations about why did she end up working for corrections and going to OU and, and you know what happened in her life that made her different from everybody else you know that was in under the state's care you know put into an orphanage and things of that sort and then when you you look at me I grew up with a, a father that I really don't know much about him, even though he was in the house. He was a very violent individual, very uh, dedicated to alcoholism. Uh, So that's where my grandfather comes in. And I can remember my grandfather pulling a gun on my father and Mm. saying, you're not, because I'd ran through the woods to my grandfather's house. So like a little red riding hood and escaped and he woke up in the middle of the night and realized I wasn't there. So he decided he'd come get me. And he was in such a terrible condition um, that uh, my grandfather said, you know, I love you, but the devil's in you and I'm going to kill you. And I'm over here like a seven-year-old boy who just walked barefoot through the woods with my feet all put up yelling at my grandfather to kill my father. And this is in your grandfather's home. Yeah. And so uh, so we, we talk about, you know, uh, it's it's mentorship. Um, for me, it was uh, maybe an English teacher when I hit sophomore in high school. And my grandfather, you know, my mother was strong, but she was quite an enabler and she worked nights doing laundry. Uh, at a state uh, school for the mentally ill. And, and so, and maybe that's where the public service came in because
0: I, I was always an advocate for the underdog. I gotta imagine, absolutely, Justin. I mean, the um, what you witnessed and what you went through of course is gonna drive you at a deeper level. Yeah, you know? which is another reason you know I didn't take the DHS job with being a social
1: worker. I, I needed out of that violent culture where entertainment was getting dropped on weekends and getting into a fight and hopefully finding some intimacy before Monday, and that's what you talk about all week from the age of 12 on up, you know. And so um, I knew early on that from looking at the the alcoholism, the drug issues, uh, the violence, that for me to survive, I had to leave. And, And as soon as I got old enough, I did. When you work in a prison, Inmates know which hand you scratch with, which ear that's going to bother you. They know everything about you. And they also know if you're fearful. And they also know if you're faking bravery. So you just you just have to kind of open your arms up and say, here I am, it is what you see. And the other thing that you learn is uh, if you got to tell an inmate that you're not overturning his grievance, you tell him to be upfront with him. There, there is kind of this inmate rule that, you know, I may not like what you gotta hear and I may get up in your face and argue with you, but be straight with me. Let me know where you stand on these things, you know. So I remember when I became director, um, we'd had really, I never really worked for a bad director because the average tenure in the United States is about two and a half years for a director. So I guess I was mentally ill staying A. uh, But... uh, I look back on those early days as director in 2005, and I would start walking these prison yards, and they'd say, "I'd say, well, why is that cell shut?" And they said, "Well, he's been acting out. We've got him on lockdown." And I said, "I want to talk to him," and they said, "No, director. You know, you don't want to I "Open the door." I remember having to ask him to open the door three or four times. And the other thing is, I didn't want people surrounded me. You know, it became kind of a game because uh, I'd say, "Look, I'm going to walk your yard. I don't need anybody." But then I would see the chief of security, the lieutenants, the captains kind of standing behind buildings, everybody watching me in case they needed to run in and save me, you know.
0: Tell me about James Coddington.
1: Well, I had, I don't believe I ever met James Connington when I was uh, director. There's a good chance we might have said hi to each other on death row, as I would to her death row what year was he put on death row do you remember i don't know i was correction instructor from 2005 to 2012 uh, but he wasn't no, 2013 a yeah. yeah he wasn't a recent no he, he wasn't has been a, a couple recent. of decades i think yeah. the 90s maybe yeah this a couple of decades um and so um I do private consulting work now. Uh, I only do Eighth Amendment violations in jails, detention facilities, and prisons. Which Eighth Amendments? Mainly, most of what I do is is wrongful deaths in prisons or preventable deaths in prison. And I do all the forensic analysis of what went right, what went wrong. And so I get a call from the federal public defenders who you know represent cases on the clemency and want to know if they could hire me uh, to do uh, a review of. Uh, Coddington's records because he looked like he'd been a really good inmate on death row all these years Plus uh, his crime was obviously horrific loss of life But it was apparently kind of situational driven by drugs and I said look, you know, send it to me I won't charge anything because yes It's I'll just look at the records let you know what I think so I started studying his records I've looked at his background uh, there was a pre-sentence investigation, there were some DHS reports, uh, from when he was in, uh, different care, and, uh, they had some really good records. So I did an affidavit that basically said, look, you know, he's, he's been an orderly on the expanded death row, which allows certain inmates to go to A unit, orderlies by policy can do work without direct supervision. So if you were an inmate that was gonna do malfeasance and you really wanted to run things, that's where you wanted to be. But he'd taken that role, gained the respect for over a decade of the staff, no misconducts, was remorseful, uh, no excuses for his crime. Uh, His mother had given him meth at the age of 10 or 12. So I started thinking about the worst backgrounds I've ever seen on inmates. And I would say he's probably in the top five. Uh, and there's some big gaps between one and five. And I just felt like he was the best of the best, considering the fact that the death penalty is is not dished out fairly if you're going to have it. It really depends on the prosecutor. Uh, it depends on the county you committed your crime in. And can you prove the particulars, three particulars that it takes to warrant death penalty and convince a jury of that? So I looked at his case and I thought, wow, I know several thousand inmates that based on this should be on death row. Uh, I've always known that there's there's inmates that didn't make death row because they rolled over on somebody or the prosecutor didn't necessarily want to go through that or the surviving victims wasn't pushing uh, for the death penalty. And so I, I did an affidavit and then kind of forgot about it. And next thing I know, um, months and months, many months later, I see uh, where he got a positive vote from the Pardon Pro Board. It's going to the Which governor. Which is a
0: conservative board. Yeah, a
1: very conservative board with a majority appointed by the governor. And I thought, wow. And I really, at that point, your highs are equal to your lows. And I thought, wow, he is really kind of pushing for it. To, uh, the victim family uh, members, of surviving families did not. Uh, we're not in favor of it, but uh, even uh, you know the person representing district attorneys on the pardon pro board voted for it, and so it was a that's free, significant. Yeah, that was very significant. Uh, and yeah, and as I said in the affidavit and in my editorial to the, to the 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 local newspaper that, and as you and I have talked early on in this conversation, he would be one of those that if I was a warden, I would want him on my yard. He's been on death row. Uh, he was a drug addict before he was a teenager. Uh, his parents gave him, you know, meth, which is one of the most difficult drugs to overcome. And, you know, he would be a, a good settling force. He'd be a good mentor. Uh, and he could tell those young people to come in, lay down and do your time. There's always hope. He would be a great uh, contributor to the Lifers Club if there's one at the facility uh, that he's at. But it didn't happen. And uh, so your highs are equal to your lows. That's one of those few times I allowed myself to get ahead of it a little bit and believe that he strongly that he was gonna make. Less well, understandable. So it was, a, it was quite the downer that he didn't. And it was odd because it was somebody I've never ever met. But when you read somebody's life history, <laughs> you know, and it's two feet thick of documentation from state agencies because your whole life has been under some form of supervision with a state agency from childhood, uh, you, you think you know that person pretty well. I I had to set through 28 executions, um, and I always feel for and give credit where credit's due for the staff that actually are in the execution chamber. My job, my role was very small, but you know, my presence was required. And even if it wasn't required, I would be there um, because you're asking your staff. To basically commit a homicide and kill another human being because the state says it's in the best interest of the state and I've always had an issue with that I can remember uh, inmates in their last words and I, I can remember several in particular who said look I was 20 21 years old I wouldn't fully cocktail developed. Uh, I'm so sorry for what I did and if you know I know that I'm going to die but I need everybody to understand I'm not the person today that I was 20 years ago, 17 years ago. And, and then there's those that their mental capacity was uh, you know, about, the, about a, that of a fifth grader, and you're wondering how in the world did the circuit courts and others not stay this execution? This is so sad. Yeah, you know, a prison yard's just a reflection of what's in the community. You know, a prison is like a small town, a warden is like a city manager. You got sewage issues, you got maintenance, you know, you got uh, water control, I mean, you got medical, you you got ambulance, you got it all. So if you're a small town and a warden is a city manager, then you've got a culture and you have a sense of community and you need balance in that sense of community. You need elders. And uh, it's kind of interesting having attended the Native American church a few times uh, you, know, you talk about the spirituality as opposed to people saying, well, I'm religious. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more of a spiritualist type person. And, and you look at the uh, the prison yards and, and you need everything. You need those elders and you need staff to engage and not be corrupt and, and, and to be honest and, and upfront and direct with people. And it, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, even inside of a prison when all that comes together. And then then you struggle to keep it together.
0: Well, and of course, uh, outside in, in the world, beyond walls, we need that as well. A lot of the men's spiritual work I do, there's that very important role of the elder.
1: You know, there's uh, a lot written about famous last words in inmates own death row, you know, some are somewhat comical. I remember one guy said, go, O oh, you, you know, another guy had some Viking chants that none of us understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, a majority are, are very forgiving, uh, and you can tell if when an inmate's quoting scripture, if they really mean and they understand what they're quoting, I mean, you, you get a sense for that. And so, um, but yeah, it. Uh, I think uh, Mr. Coddington was very sincere in that, and uh, you know, he got criticized. So I, I believe it was real.
0: This has been a very valuable conversation, not because I care about it, only because you have such a huge amount of wisdom. Which you know, there's knowledge that we learn through school and on-the-job training, and wisdom is hard-earned through life experiences as well. And there's a tremendous amount of wisdom you've shared with me and and whoever's listening. And so what I what I ask is, you know, to, to sort of somewhat spontaneously uh, answer these questions, which is, what is something that is weighing that weighs on you? Um, now, it could be something personal, it could be something out in the larger world, um, and then something you're celebrating. The opportunity to grant clemency to Coddington and what that signifies for our state, what is ahead with how many executions are coming in the next twenty? west quite a lot. By the end of next year, you know? So that's weighing on me, just the, um, you know, you have that on you, even those of us like you and I who oppose it and we we don't we aren't quiet about that we all have that on us that stain and that um, lack of courage and lack of it may sound like a strange word to use but creativity right to be able to say how can we still hold people accountable for terrible mistakes but in a way that creates sort of that composted you know phoenix bird you know can something come up out of the ashes from this and i just don't know if there's other than the the power that maybe james way he lived and then his last words could have on other inmates uh that could be something that um can't be touched by the the sort of retributive spirit um within state government right now and something i'm celebrating which is a bit not not really directly related to what we've been talking about but but um But related a little bit, because I mentioned it, in the work I do with men, which is in somewhat group settings, I do it in a prison in Oklahoma, and I do it with men in society, Um, men who are coming to middle age and dealing with things that um, they haven't been totally aware of, you know, grief that they have, not just around death in their families, but, you know, Um, the father relationship they never had or that career that they dedicated so much to, never really (laughs) fulfilling them in the way they thought. And there they are at 50 thinking, well, what do I do now? You know, but I've just been seeing more and more in my my own little carved out um, niche that I do, guys stepping forward um, into that world, one-on-one work I do with them and other. And it's just been really um, touching and the courage I'm seeing because that's not within our... um, as you know, that's not within sort of the top line American culture for men to be vulnerable and make mistakes and show weakness. And so, just uh, showing up and being willing has really been been beautiful to see. And I want those people out there who love men, men and women who who love the men in their lives, to know that um, there are a lot of problems <laughs> with masculinity and what we're seeing, um, and myself included, as I work through those things as a um, as a man who's had a lot of privilege. Um, but to say that they're I'm seeing in my own little micro examples, guys really addressing things and wanting to not just uh, on the outside do the right thing, but really wanting to go in and figure out why why do I have that? Why do I have that resentment? Why do I have that prejudice that um, you know, or why do I have that negative attitude towards the, the woman in my life, whatever it be. So I'm celebrating that. What about you? Well, I you know,
1: I, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is just the division in our country and um the fact that ethics has kind of been pushed to the side on a lot of issues, and then I, I tried to, you know, take that heaviness and look inward with it. And so, you know, that that heaviness when I look inward is, it, it's kind of like um, sometimes when there's successful legislation and they call it criminal justice reform, uh, it is easy hanging fruit. And then legislators will wipe their hands and go, hey, we dealt with that. We don't have to touch this controversy again. So one of the things that's weighing heavy is the fact that there's still the big elephant in the room in Oklahoma and a lot of states, and this these draconian sentence links. Um, sure, you know, you commit a crime, you need to pay your time, but how much time? Because our prisons are full, and I'm getting older, so it's really weighing heavy on me. You know, I'll be 67 next month, and it's really weighing heavy that you got all these old um, elderly men and women in prison that committed the crimes uh, even prior to be prior to 25, when you're fully allegedly fully cognitive developed, that are just sitting there dying. And I look at those that are you know stage three, stage four cancer that can't get out to be with their loved ones on their last few months, and and it always goes back to I remember signing many documents to different governors. When I was corrections director, you know, asking for medical parole because they've got six months to live or sixty days to live, uh, you know, they're in a medical bed, they're in a, they're not going to be able to, they can't physically harm anybody, and it would be denied. And so I think about, I think the country has lost some compassion, and uh, and it has lost some spirituality in all of this. Um, what I celebrate is the blessings that I've been able to live this on uh the blessings of my grandkids and my the life that I love dearly. You know, love is really hard. It doesn't come easy. Um but when I look at leadership, I want to know if that leader cares. Uh you know, I've worked for people, um, other correction directors that really cared about their job, you know, but they cared more about organizational structure and Making sure that the dance was appropriate at the state capitol and things of that sort. Um, you know, became quite the politicians sometimes themselves. Um, but did they did they care about the people they're serving? because you, you, you know you're serving the public as a public servant, but those inmates are the public. And I used to tell people, uh, nobody wanted to listen. I said, I've never understood you can so you, you get convicted of a felony you go to prison you can no longer vote while you're in prison you lose all these other rights why are we just if we let them keep some of their ability to be franchised because i think vermont and maine and puerto rico allow their inmates to vote it it makes a big deal you know but what we do we take the disenfranchised insist on prosecuting even on cases that you know you could probably just have some restitution or community service and that's not to say that doesn't happen. But then we stack all these other things on top of them to ensure that for the rest of their life, they're disenfranchised. And I, I, I always looked for leadership in corrections where to where the
0: care about everybody you yes, serve. Yeah. We could keep going on all this. Oh, absolutely. But uh, but, uh, this has been a pleasure and it's great to have you in my home and, um, we were, I was in the legislature and you were in your role over similar times, and I didn't really get to have much interaction with you because it wasn't an area. I wasn't on the committees that right. dealt with this, and it just didn't come up much as an issue. So I'm really grateful that we get this time together to, to learn about what you've done and what you've experienced. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Well, what, what a life with Justin. Um, these experiences he had when he was younger as director and even since, The relationships that he was able to uh, have with inmates uh, really, I think, was a treat and a treasure for us today, you and me, and as the as the listeners. I want to thank our production team, who's just wonderful, um, works so well with the material. I want to leave you today with, um, I don't know if I would call it a poem. This is written by one of the inmates that I work with um, at Lexington Prison here in Oklahoma. I gave a prompt. Um, to this group that I work with of, of inmates uh, on just the idea of what does the word humility mean to them and they could have written a long extensive essay or s- short answer, poetry, whatever. It was very flexible. I think it's a word that's maybe often misunderstood or just has different meanings depending on people's life experience and ob- obviously sometimes people attach it a little too much to humiliation. Not that it's not attached to that. But anyway, Robert Grass has become a friend a um, really remarkable man who's incarcerated at Lexington. This is what he wrote, and he gave me permission to share it. To me, humility is when I put another's need over my own need without a feeling of sacrifice. It's when I have hope for another. Being less without knowledge or promise of benefit to be humble is serving in God's grace while burning in light or drowning in darkness. Doesn't matter. Humility is a promise between two souls, despite who sees or doesn't see.